0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Friday, uh, August the 18th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports with dispatches on the continuing threats by the Economic Community of West African States, uh, ECOWAS, to militarily intervene in Niger at the aegis of the United States, France, and other NATO states. The International Monetary Fund has endorsed Kenya's lifting of fuel subsidies, which have triggered inflation inside the East African country. The Southern African Development Community, (SADC) may send troops to the Democratic Republic of Congo as part of a peacekeeping force, and United Nations troops are, sending, uh, are set to withdraw its soldiers from West African state of Mali. In the second hour, uh, we'll be... Uh, covering in detail uh, developments in the West African state of Niger. Finally, uh, we're going to continue our month-long commemoration of Black August, the struggle against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism, featuring uh, the history of the so-called Black Seminole Wars of the Southeast during the early and uh, mid-19th century. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our music and elude in the West African state of Niger uh, with the all-women's band, Le Fil d'Iligadad. Uh This is from the album entitled Eghas Milan.
2: امي غدادو ريواناس تراني بيليساتو ساناس
1: Niger, uh, where, uh, of course, there is a lot of uh, discussion and, of course, a lot of turmoil uh, that has largely been instituted uh, by France and the United States. And uh, the name of the band is Les Filles de la Gadad, and that was from their album entitled Igos Milan, an all-women's band uh, from uh, the West African state of Niger, and uh, right now we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And our lead story, of course, deals uh, with uh, the current situation uh, in Niger uh, where a new government, uh, which took power uh, just uh, late last month, uh, has uh, gained uh, the popularity of people, not only in Niger, but throughout the entire West Africa region. And of course, um, This has caused uh, quite a bit of consternation by France and the United States, uh, who have substantial economic, military, and strategic interests uh, within uh, the West African state of Niger, and within the entire West Africa region as a whole. Now, hundreds of people uh, filed uh, into the streets of Kano in northern Nigeria. It is the commercial hub uh, of that region. Uh, This happened just this last past Saturday. They were chanting... uh, and singing songs, some waved the Nigerian flags and others waved the flag of Niger and Nigeria. Uh, the neighboring country to the north uh, where a group of soldiers overthrew the president late last month, many who took part in the march, uh, chanted anti-Western slogans in support of Nigeria's military junta, uh, which has defied calls from the West Africa's regional bloc to restore the democratically elected President Mohammed Bazoum or face the possibility of military intervention. The Kano protest was just one of the developments in recent days that have shown the depth of feeling in Northern Nigeria, where most people are from the Hausa nationality, just as they are across the border in Niger. Now, whereas attempts to meet uh, the junta leader by officials from the economic community of West African states and the United States were rebuffed the last week, uh, visitors from northern Nigeria have been granted access, achieving the deepest engagement with the pushes so far. A group of Islamic scholars, predominantly uh, from northern Nigeria, who held talks with Nigerian leaders, Abdurrahmani Jihani, at the weekend, issued a statement stating that, quote, both parties agreed to intensify the option of dialogue in resolving the political crisis, unquote. Quote, while tracing the historical ties between the two nations, he, Chiani, said Nigeria Republic and Nigeria were not only neighbors, but brothers and sisters who should resolve issues amicably, the clerics uh, said in a statement. Days earlier, Lamido Sanusi uh, also met Chiani. Sanusi, a former Nigerian central bank governor and erstwhile emir of Kano, is the spiritual leader of the... Tijani Islamic movement in Nigeria, which has millions of followers across West Africa, including Niger, Praters traditionally move back and forth across the border between the two countries, sometimes on a daily basis, contributing greatly to the informal economies of border towns. And it is common to have relatives in the neighboring country. Labaran Jafaru, a traditional leader in Sabon Berni, a border town in the northwest Nigerian state of Sokoto, said people have, quote, already begun suffering, end quote, since the closure of the border between the two countries as part of Ekawas' sanctions against Niger. Quote, traders will tell you that their sales have increased extensively, unquote, he said. He went on to say that, quote, hundreds of trucks are trapped in the border's with uh, perishable crops such as onions decaying as entry into either of the two countries has been banned, unquote. Northern Nigeria's house of people have deep cultural, linguistic, religious, and economic ties with their house of brethren in Niger that go back centuries. Further than the border created by colonialists that divides uh, the two countries, those ties are important, and as the delegation of Muslim clerics and Sanusi illustrated, they could be inviable in resolving the impasse that has followed Nigeria's coup and the threat of military force. The strength uh, of feeling uh, felt in the north is likely to affect any calculations made by Nigeria's President Bola Tinubu, who, as ECOWAS chairman, was the driving force behind the bloc's ultimatum for the junta to restore Bazum or face the possibility of military action. The anger in the streets of Kano could spread to other parts of northern Nigeria. Seven of the country's 36 states border Niger. The threat of anger spreading is particularly high at a time of growing frustration at the skyrocketing cost of living after Tinubu scrapped the country's popular petrol subsidy. Against this backdrop, the use of military force would be particularly unpopular, particularly since it would be financially costly due to Nigeria's being the biggest funder of the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. Nigeria's military has already stretched, contending with the security problems Tanubu, who took office at the end of May, inherited. Those challenges range from the Islamic insurgency in the Northeast to kidnap for ransom by so-called bandits in the Northwest and violent successionists in the Southeast. Nigeria's army, which is traditionally dominated by houses, will not want to fight people with whom they share strong cultural ties. Northern Nigeria threatens to create a headache for Tinubu, who, as the biggest benefactor of troops and funds to ECOWAS, will be a key player in the next steps taken by ECOWAS. But figures from that part of the country could also play a crucial role in finding a democratic solution and a diplomatic solution. And you can read more on the current situation in Niger over the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, in East Africa, the International Monetary Fund has thrown its weight behind President William Ruto's fresh plan to stabilize fuel prices through the resources accumulated in the Petroleum Development Levy, the PDL Fund, amid divergent views on whether the government's latest action was tantamount to a subsidy. IMF, which propagates policies considered to be unpopular with the masses, such as taxation of fuel Increasing of Interest Rates and Removal of Government Subsidies on Fuel in Exchange for Financing, said the latest action by the government to cushion consumers from high-level fuel prices through the PDL is not a breach of Kenya's commitment under the IMF-supported program. Quote, as long as the action taken by the government is financed by the resources accumulated in the Petroleum Development Fund, the action does not lead to a breach of the government's commitments under the IMF-supported program. Salim Kahir, IMF's resident representative in Kenya, told the East African newspaper in an email response just two days ago. In its latest monthly fuel report, August 15th through September 14th, the state curbed further increases in fuel prices by opting to compensate oil marketers with price differential amounting to Kenyan shillings or 0.05 per liter petrol, uh, 3.5 Kenyan shillings uh, equal to 0.02 of U.S. currency per liter of of diesel and 5.7 shillings or 0.04 per liter of kerosene. Uh, President Ruto clarified that this action is not a, quote, subsidy, unquote, but purely a fuel stabilization mechanism through the PDL fund that is financed by motorists at the height rate of Kenyan shillings, 5.4 or some three cents per liter of fuel. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, in the West African state of Mali, uh, the United Nations, has been asked to leave the country along uh, with french military forces which have formally exited the west african state which was a former colony of paris the united states has lamented worsening violence in mali as the un multidimensional integrated stabilization mission known as minusma begins its withdrawal earlier than scheduled the united nations mission is withdrawing from the restive west african nation on the request of the military-led transitional government, which accused it of being part of a, over a decade-long conflict that has created one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world. In a statement on August the 13th, MINUSMA announced that three of its soldiers were wounded when they came under fire twice as they departed a major base in the town of Bera in the north of the country. At the same time, the Malian army said six of its soldiers died and 24 alleged terrorist fighters killed in a skirmish in the area. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, surrounding the Southern African development uh, community, Southern African development community leaders just two days ago agreed to deploy troops to the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, and extended the bloc's military mission in Mozambique in a move they said, is meant to bring peace to the region. The resolutions uh, were made after the 43rd ordinary Summit of the Southern African Development Community Heads of State and Government, the highest organ of the Southern African Bloc. Now, in in regard to, to this situation, the decision means member states of the Bloc could deploy a new mission to the Democratic Republic of Congo, making it three- The number of foreign military missions in the eastern part of the country were hundreds of armed groups, roam, The two others, the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Congo, MONUSCO, and the East African Community Regional Force, the EACRF, have operated controversially, sometimes accused of being lethargic and facing angry civilians in protest. This week, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced MUNUSCO will hasten their withdrawal, citing a hostile public opinion about the 15,000 troop mission. MUNUSCO is supposed to leave the leave completely by the end of next year, State, starting uh, this coming December. EACRF, on its part, has its mandate until September this year and could be forced out if Kinshasa refuses to extend the status of force agreement, which is the country's permission to allow the troops from the East African community to deploy eacrf was deployed in november last year and had its initial agreement extended by six months in march with that that we want to conclude uh, the pan-african newswire segment of the pan-african journal in closing of this segment of our program we would like to remind all of our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The Press agency was founded in the of 1998 and has published uh, tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source of, on Pan-African and global affairs, If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, uh, August uh, the – for Friday, August the 17th. Uh, All you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the lovely voices and music of the Pointer Sisters uh, from their track entitled title, Love Too Good to Last. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for uh, this Friday, uh, August uh, the 18th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast. And if you read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, there's a considerable amount of uh, news information uh, on the current uh, geopolitical uh, crisis in West Africa focusing on the Niger Republic. It has impacted not only uh, developments in Niger, but throughout the entire uh, Sahel and West Africa region. Uh, In Ghana, uh, which is also a member of the Economic Community of West African States, uh, opposition uh, analysts and uh, socialists and Nkrumahs Kwesi Pratt Jr. gave his commentary on the current situation in Niger and the threats uh, by ECOWAS at the aegis of uh, the Western imperialist countries during the crisis in West Africa. Let's listen in. Well, it
3: is now
4: obvious that many or the West African leaders are beginning to look like clowns it is also obvious that a number of them are so lawless it's unbelievable they are, they are just implacably lawless absolutely lawless look the whole West African scenario with regards to what is happening in Niger is beginning to look like a circus And I'm sitting back and I'm looking at the situation and I feel ashamed. I feel really ashamed, you know, of the kind of leaders we have and the kind of circus they are running. These West African leaders, many of them, are demonstrating clearly before the world that they are not in touch with the aspirations of their people. And it's clear. Senna, this week ECOWAS held a meeting in Abuja hmm? to decide what to do with the coup d'etat in Niger. One of the people who went to that meeting is Makisar from Senegal. When he boarded the plane and flew into Abuja, what did he leave behind in his home, home country? He left opposition leaders locked up in jail. He left a racial society where police were firing light bullets, rubber bullets, and tear guards against his own people who were protesting against his misrule. What authority does that, Makisal have to be discussing the matters in, in Niger? What double standards? It's incredible. Makisar. Makisar going to Niger to restore democracy. Has he been able to to restore democracy to Senegal? where he's coming from? it's incredible. And we are all sitting down, looking at this clown. You know, taking everybody for a ride. And pretending to be what he's not. Makisar, Democrat. Can you believe it? He's also in Abuja, planning to attack Niger to restore democracy. Does he understand democracy? Incredible! The other one who was making more noise than everybody else is Alassane Ouattara. Alassane Watara is a Democrat. And <laughs> Alassane Ouattara is a Democrat. He finished building democracy in La Côte d'Ivoire and is now moving on to Niger to restore democracy. Alassane Watara. Unbelievable! This is a guy eh, who was installed by the French army. The French army overthrew Lorraine Babo and put him there as head of state. He is going to fight another coup d'état. Incredible! Alain Gomis, who amended his country's constitution, which gave him only two terms, and continues to stay in office, he knows about democracy and is going to restore democracy. Unbelievable. We can analyze all of them. Why? He didn't know. election results have not been confirmed yet. He's still in dispute. He also is presiding over a meeting of Ecowas to go and restore democracy (laughs) in Nigeria. What happened to these leaders? Why? Are you in land? Unbelievable. And then the rest of them. All the rest of them. Sarah Leone, look at the crisis in Sarah Leone today. Only last week they arrested virtually half of the military, military officers in Sarah Leone and locked them up because of fear. You see, Sarah, I wish I could take a peek into, into the, the, the meeting room. These are leaders who are scared, scared of their own shadows. Leaders who know that their misrule is catching up with them. They are so frightened, and out of their fright, their capacity to to, to to think has escaped them. So they are just there running around the corner like 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 some bull in some china shop, you know, trying to frighten everybody else so that they are not they are not removed from office. They can't frighten nobody. They can't frighten nobody. And what's so lawless, is unbelievable. Under international law, and fortunately for us, there's, there's a, a very highly respected lawyer amongst us this morning. No country or group of countries can legitimately declare war on another without approval by the UN Security Council. These ECOWAS leaders. Have they got a UN Security Council approval for what they are doing? They want to respect they want to restore democracy, but they don't respect the law. They have no respect for the law at all. They want to wage war without a UN Security Council approval. And they say they are democratic. What is their democracy? Unbelievable. How many of them have consulted their people? In Ghana, for example, the president is required to seek parliamentary approval before he marches his troops into any war. Has the president of Ghana sought parliamentary approval for this reckless adventure? No! He will return the meeting. He went to the Nigerian parliament to seek approval They said no, we ain't going nowhere. So why is he to send me a meeting to go and wage war? when his own parliament has told him that he cannot wait for are these people fit to restore democracy anywhere unbelievable in any case what is democracy so now what what is this democracy what is it check all the african countries west african countries how many of them have truly organized elections The results of which reflect the genuine aspirations of their people. Or the genuine trust of their people. This every four-year election is a joke. We all know it. What happens? The man with the biggest bag of money wins. The man who is able to manipulate the police or the armed forces on his side wins the election. These elections in West Africa do not reflect the genuine aspirations and choices of our people. We know that. Should I cite examples? You saw all those videos about the Nigerian elections. You saw the truckloads of money. Now, is that democracy? Is that the democracy we are in a to go and restore? Unbelievable. West African has of state my goodness they are embarrassing us and they do not speak for us at least they do not speak for me they speak for themselves and you see they to speak for themselves even in their sober moods and so on maybe but these people are frightened frightened of their misadministration and so on they are frightened they are kicking everything in their way This recklessness must not be encouraged, must not be accepted, and must be resisted with the full force of all West Africans. Something happened at the Abuja summit, which is interesting. West Africa is made up of 16 states, only 8 were there, 8 out of 16. What is the legitimacy of that meeting? What mandate did that meeting have? Eight of states were there, including one whose parliament has told him that he should avoid that recklessness and that they are not going to war. So what is the legitimacy of that whole exercise? Of the eight which were represented, one state was represented at ambassadorial level. That country did not even send foreign minister. The president did not go, defense minister did not go, they said ambassador in Abuja, that's how serious they took that meeting. What kind of meeting is that? I, I, I can't believe what is happening. Look, I hear people say that, oh, as for me, I will not support any coup and so on. And unfortunately, my very good friend and brother Philip said the same thing this morning. Who are you to support the coup in Niger or not to support the coup in Niger? Let the people of Niger make their own choices. Why we in Ghana, we make our own choices. We are about to go for an election in twenty twenty four. Nobody in any West African country has the right to tell us who to vote for, and who not to vote for, or what system of government we should have, or what system of government we should not have. So we should not become so arrogant as to think that we can decide how, what choices other people make. In any case, look at the circumstances in which choices are being made in these countries. Before the coup d'etat in Burkina Faso, 60%, 60% of the land territory of Burkina Faso was under the control of Islamic insurgents. 60%. It was not possible at that time to organize democratic elections. You cannot organize democratic elections when 60% of your land territory is under the control of insurgents. And these West African leaders, they sat in a crown at that period and said, "No, you must organize le-. organize elections." Where? In Burkina, 60% of your land territory is under uh, under the insurgents. How do you organize elections there? they are totally out of tune they don't know what they are talking about in any case how many of these West African leaders so called democratically elected leaders can garner 10% of the support we see for these so called cool leaders how many of them? also the Equal delegation which made the mistake of going to Mali to go and persuade the people to hand over power. Did you see the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who met them in the streets and told them to go back home and that they didn't want to see them there? And they didn't learn any lessons, they were not ashamed, they oh. continue. If I were one of those, I would be so embarrassed. Yesterday, I saw the videos of Nigerians massing up in support of their government. And against French domination. The other people are to see those videos. How many of them, if they are the today, will get that kind of support in their favor? How many of them? None of them. None of them. Are they are only deceiving themselves. You understand? In any case, my brother, what are the issues? The issues are many. But I like to take the the, the important ones. Take all French-speaking African countries. Take them together. All of them, without exception. Keep their foreign reserves in the central bank of France. As a result, these French-speaking African countries borrow their own money, and they pay interest on their own money. To France. To France. You understand? So these poor African countries, in Nigeria is said to be the second poorest country in the world. How they came to that conclusion, I don't know. But that's, that's the discussion. All these African leaders are sitting down. They don't care about this massive level of exploitation of their own you know, compatriots by France. But when they of of a useless head of state is overthrown, they want to go and fight. Look! Until recently, the presidential palace in La, in, in La Côte d'Ivoire, in Abidjan, was owned by France. Until recently. And most African leaders are comfortable with that. And in fact, let me tell you something else. They are not only comfortable with that, they want to emulate that. You know, Ghana was part of the Commonwealth, hmm? an association. Of, of countries which were colonized by the British and we were all living with anger that after so many years of independence why do you belong to the Commonwealth given its history and so on and that we should even get out of the Commonwealth well one of my friends became head of state in Ghana he said oh the Commonwealth is not enough Ghana applied to join the Francophonie so today Ghana is not only a member of the Commonwealth, we are also a member of the Association of Former Colonies of France. Can you believe this? Come in Thomas, Ghana, we have embraced the Commonwealth, and we are carrying from 42 on our heads. Unbelievable! These leaders, and they West African leaders, these are soldiers of France. Surrogates of the West. Look, if they tell them tomorrow that none of them should go to work, they should all go and sleep. They all go and sleep. These leaders we have. We are talking about a situation in which hmm, France has a large military base in Niger. The second largest drone base of the United States of America is also in Niger. West African leaders are not worried about that. Now the ground base, what is it for? Is it for growing cassava? The ground base, the U.S. ground base, is it for growing cassava? Or is it for te- teaching our children? Or for what? It's the world war! It's an instrument of destabilization in our sub-region. And the West African states have no problems, they have no problems with that. Of course, how can they have problems with that when Ghana itself has, through a defense agreement, enabled the U.S. to use Ghana as a base for warfare? How can they criticize that? What happened with that? You know, and the the infantry France tells us that if we agree to go and kill ourselves, if we agree to send our soldiers there to go and die, you know, somebody's father, somebody's mother, somebody's uncle, send them to Israel to go and die, they will give us $25 million. Insulting! One African soldier is worth more than $25 million. Our people are not for sale. The era of the transatlantic slave trade trade is over. African lives would not be sacrificed or sold for money. And they have to understand that very clearly. That period of the transatlantic slave trade is over. It's not coming back again. And the earlier friends realize that, the better. That we should go and kill ourselves. And if we kill ourselves, they'll give us $35 million. What an insult. Incredible insult. You understand? Put that aside. My brother. After only one week of sex. Go to the market and see the price of onions. The price of onions on the Ghanaian market have doubled. I don't know what is going to happen next week with the price of onions. And it will not just the onions, it will affect everything else. When I saw the amount of money we spent importing tomatoes from Burkina Faso, I was shocked. You understand? And you are going to wage war. You can't even produce tomatoes for your people. You are going to wage war. So if that is blocked, your onions are out, your tomatoes are out. Even those who eat kinky and fish, how are they going to grind pepper to eat the kinky and fish? You know, reckless decisions. Reckless decisions. You know what is happening? These sanctions are going to backfire on us the same way that the sanctions that the Western countries imposed on Russia is backfiring on them. And our leaders must wake up and begin to think. They must think about us, our interests, and so on. You understand? Now, see what has happened. ECOWAS today is at a risk of disintegration, total disintegration. Okay? You have money. We have Guinea, we have Burkina Faso, and another country saying that look, as for us, if you launch this attack, we are withdrawing from ECOWAS. What do the left of ECOWAS? Sixteen member association, voluntary association of nations. Six of your members are threatening to withdraw, and more will withdraw. ECOWAS would have been completely disintegrated. You know, and you know one of the funny things. The first time I saw somebody addressing a press conference on this matter, to my shock, it was one of my comrades. A comrade with whom I've been in the trenches for a very long time. I mean, very sober person. He was a rising academic and so on. I mean, Musa, I mean, fatal. He was the one announcing this. He's never had a pistol in his hand before. He's calling for war. Lisa, you, you calling for war? You should take a pistol and go and fight. If you give me a pistol, he'll probably shoot himself. <laughs> He's also there in his nice suit calling for war. Jesus Christ of Nazareth! Why, why, what is this? How about you pretty? What is this? I, I was social. Sure he was in a very beautiful suit and speaking. You know, immaculate English, well. and so. I mean, no, I said, war is not the Queen's English; it's not your ability to speak the Queen's English. You must hold the weapon. I mean, if I give you a pistol today, you shoot to yourself. And look, let nobody take our soldiers for granted. Our soldiers are human beings like us. They have responsibilities like us, and so. Our soldiers. They are not suicidal. Our soldiers don't want to go and die in any foolish war. Ghanaian soldiers will not die in any foolish war. Especially to save a useless president like the one who has been overthrown in in, in Niger. So those who are planning against the Ghanaian constitution, against Ghanaian law and international law, to send Ghanaian soldiers to go and die foolish death, they must think again because the soldiers will not die foolish death and I can say that on authority no Ghanaian soldier is willing to go there and die foolishly for some president he doesn't know so they should be careful because this thing can backfire on us and this happened many times many, many, many times we've seen that in history and I can give you the historical examples of soldiers being really moved into useless wars and coming back to lead rebellions against those who facilitated their death. Look, I'll mention one. You know that our independence struggle was spearheaded by ex-servicemen who fought in Burma and so on. Why did those ex-servicemen become leaders of the independence movement, Sergeant Tajete, Corporate People and so on? The war taught them important lessons about how useless the British administration was and how they were being exploited. So those who want to push our soldiers into war must learn the lessons of our history. It is a very dangerous move. Then Senna, look at the state of the Ghanaian economy. Look at the state of the Ghanaian economy. Prices of food, have shot up by 300% in less than two years. Electricity tariffs are being increased by half. The price of petroleum products don't go there at all. Now we say that we need to raise taxes to the extent that sanitary parts of women are even categorized as as luxury goods. We are taxing sanitary parts parts for women eh, in order to make money. And then you make all of this money and then you put it in a war machine to go and restore the president of Niger. Hmm. I should pay more electricity tariffs. Hmm. I should any call I make, I should pay tax on it. If I make mobile money transfer, I pay tax on it. And I do all this just to go and finance some useless, absolutely useless war to restore President what is his name too? Bazoo or somebody. What do you take the people of Ghana for? That they make all these sacrifices just for you to go and restore some president. And you say what? Democracy. We well, have no democracy in Niger. And then, another important part. You're talking democracy and how to restore it as well. What is the value of that democracy? That democracy is valueless, absolutely valueless, if it does not deliver on its end goals. Democracy must eh, extend people's access to social services. Democracy must improve the standard of living of our people. Democracy must lead to improvement in national infrastructure. That is how democracy declines value. Democracy which becomes a sing-song for the elite, which has no relevance to uplifting the living standards of our people, is useless democracy. It is not worth pursuing. And we must, we must make that point quite clear. The only democracy which is worth pursuing is democracy which is transformative. Democracy which changes the lives of our people. Democracy which makes it possible for people to eat at least one square meal a day. Not the kind of democracy which brings the price of KK from one city to five cities in two years. That's not the kind of democracy people would uphold. And then <laughs> the other day I had some very top government official in Ghana saying that, oh, as for Ghana soldiers, they would never stay their coup d'etat because they are professional and disciplined. All these military officers, what oath did they take? The oath which was administered to all these military officers is us to uphold the territorial integrity of Ghana, to defend the constitution of Ghana and so on. So if we do not uphold the territorial integrity of Ghana, do not uphold the tenets of our constitution and so on, they will live by the oath which we administered to them. Then we write that oath. We wrote that oath and administered it to them to defend our territorial integrity, to protect our constitution. After giving that oath to our soldiers, we should do the things which enables them to protect us, to protect our constitution, and to defend our territorial integrity. It was my brother Philip, I think, who was talking about the northern border of Chad, of, of Niger, and what is happening there now my brother the reports are frightening traffic has come to a standstill goods and services no longer are no longer exchangeable articulated trucks are everywhere going there to take their onions and other products and so on meat and so on because of this recklessness of our leaders commerce has broken down completely and you see our leaders sometimes I wonder whether they even know our history. Do you know that the boundaries we have today, hmm, as African states, not as West African states, as African states, were imposed upon us? In 1884, Otto von Bismarck, then Chancellor of Germany, invited his colleague European leaders to a meeting in Bonn to determine their fears of influence in Africa. They put a map of Africa in front of them, they took pencils and arbitrarily drew lines across those maps, and those maps became our boundaries. So, as I've always said, I know the border with Togo very well. You understand? You go to Ghana's border with Togo, you find one house, the bedroom is in Ghana, the kitchen is in Togo. That is the reality of the African continent. So you will find that in Niger, most of the people living in the north of Niger, share the same language and culture with the people in Nigeria. They are the, 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 even relatives. Their brothers, their sisters, their nephews, their uncles and so on. That is what is happening with the border. And that is why, Nigerian governors on the border with Niger have said that even if, even if the Nigerian Senate approves a war with Niger, they would not allow their territories to be used for that war. That's an important development. So how are they going to wage that war? We will get Ghanaian soldiers, we we'll fly Ghanaian soldiers into, into Miami to go and fight. In any case, how many planes does our, our air force have? So how many flights a day are we going to make to send enough numbers of soldiers into Indonesia to go and fight? Crazy! They haven't even talked about this. And then Al said, I'll give you one thousand soldiers. <laughs> hey, you know. If you give us 1,000 soldiers, you should go and wait for him. 1,000 soldiers. (laughs) (coughs) These leaders, Master, something is wrong with these leaders. I bet my bottom girl on these leaders. We have problems. These leaders have problems. The man we are going to fight to install is in the hands of those who are taking over. How are you going to extricate him from the hands? We are going to shoot you away. You will kill him yourself. You will kill him before the... <laughs> West African leaders. I don't think that even kindergarten children will behave like this and think like this. The man who wants to go and install a head of state is in their hands. They are holding him. Go. Go and install him. <laughs> hey. Hmm, Master, Look. We, the citizens of West Africa, have a responsibility, a big responsibility, to stop our leaders in their tracks, to tell our leaders that they don't speak for us, to make it plain to our leaders that we don't have a fight with Niger, and I'm talking about the youth movements, I'm talking about the student movements, the women's organizations, the trade unions, the political parties and movements, and so on, all of us have a a responsibility to demonstrate to our leaders that they speak for themselves and that they would not be allowed to abuse our mandate to wage a reckless war in Niger. I am aware that there are many, many international organizations which are planning, maybe from tomorrow, to mobilize signatures to tell our leaders that they are on the wrong track. Let us all join those signature campaigns across the world. Let mobilize millions of people, millions and millions of people across the world to send this message loud and clear to our leaders that we are not part of their recklessness and that we have no intention of killing anybody from Niger. They haven't committed any crime. They haven't done anything against us. We will not kill them. If anything, we would think with them and act with them in order to build a more stable and prosperous West Africa. And West Africa, whose people control their resources and whose people exploit these resources for their own benefit and not the benefit of France or any other country anywhere in the world. We need to send this message out loud and clear. We have a responsibility to ourselves to wage that struggle until final victory. Alongside this struggle, we must listen to the voice of Kwame Nkrumah, who tells us that we should build an Africa without a bomb. And if we are going to build an Africa without a bomb, it's our responsibility to dismantle all foreign military bases on our continent. The masses of Africa, the masses of West Africa, we have the responsibility to ensure that no foreign government, no foreign country has a military base on our soil. We have to dismantle all these military bases and build a secure, prosperous, and workable West Africa which works in the interest of the people of West Africa. That is our charge, and we dare not fail. Because if we fail, the consequences will be grave for us. If we fail... We will continue to have the last of our parents as heads of state. If we fail, our central banks will be making losses of 60 billion and more every year. If we fail, our children will still continue to attend classes under trees. If we fail, our national infrastructures will collapse on our heads and so on. We dare not fail. We must win. And the first point of victory was to stop this reckless and senseless war in Niger. We will win. Let's act together and we will win. We will be victorious.
1: That was uh, the voice of an uh, and socialist anti-imperialist uh, from Ghana, uh, Kwasi Pratt, Jr., talking about the uh, developing crisis in uh, the West African state of Niger. Uh, It's an indication of the widespread opposition to uh, the Pentagon, uh, Central Intelligence Agency, French Armed Forces, and North Atlantic Treaty Organization scheme uh, for a further uh, occupation of Niger, which already has uh, over 1,100 U.S. troops, uh, CIA personnel, State Department personnel, as well as uh, some 1,800 French Armed Forces troops occupying the country in order to establish Niger as an outpost, military and economic outpost of imperialism. We have another um, segment here. Uh, this deals with the historic crimes uh, being committed by France and Africa.
3: in Africa.
5: The 14th Emir of Kano and leader of the Tijaniya Movement in Africa, Mohamedou Sanusi, has met with the leaders of the military junta in Niger Republic. Now the surprise meeting comes after the military junta had aborted a meeting with representatives of the African Union, the Economic Community of West African States, and a top U.S. diplomat. Last week, a delegation of ECOWAS who stormed the presidential palace in Yami and met with both the coup leaders after President Mohamed Bazun, immediate former president, could not broker peace as the military junta failed to grant audience to the delegation. However, Sanusi, whose Tijaniya sect has a large following in Nigeria, met with the military leadership. Their meeting comes 24 hours after the echoes led by President Bola imposed more sanctions on the military rulers. Well, for more on this, I'm joined live in the studio by Ibrahim Zain konji a Chadian social-political activist and very much apprised uh, of what's uh, happening on the ground in the Niger Republic. Good to see you and thanks for your time.
0: Thanks for having me.
5: Uh, let's start off by uh, looking at first the first cause which many Africans would like to understand, especially in other uh, countries where military uh, uh, have taken over. Now, What's the immediate cause? What do you think is the immediate cause of this military takeover? Because now we see that some citizens uh, seem to be uh, rejoicing over the takeover.
0: Uh, great. Regarding that coup of uh, uh, 26 26th of last month, actually there were two episodes. On two episodes? Coup. Yes, please, on that coup. The earlier one, the coup was led by former chief of uh, presidential guard, Abdur-Rahman Omar he started at 5 o'clock, or 5 a.m. took the president hostage and then asked him to resign in order for him to take over. Actually, he did not have any valid reason by then. It was just personal misunderstanding. The man is about to go, and he wanted to retire him in form of retaliation. So around 11 in the morning. Let me,
5: let me get this. So it was time for Abdurahman Chiani to leave the army to, re- to retire.
0: Yes, please. So he attempted the coup by 5 a.m. So around 11, military came in and. Uh, uh, Guard National, what they call it, uh, National Guards, also another paramilitary unit, a very strong force actually, it's a parallel to the military. So they came and seized, surrounded the presidency. And they asked Abdurrahman Omar Chayani to relieve the president or we are going to attack. Because his own men already closed the doors and the windows or do- um, uh, roads to the presidency. So, from there, things got normal around 11. Mm. Later in the afternoon, communication within the military, senior officers took place. Finally, they agreed on to continue with the coup. There were some many differences and misunderstandings between some of the military, Janta and Abdurrahman Umar Chayani, earlier before 26 of the last month. So, they had an agreement, it was consensus. Around 11 in the night, they released the coup bulletin from the national TV. Actually, by then, they all came together, they made their concessions. And they gave a name, National Council for Protection of Our Homeland. So, all the military units, they came and accepted and supported the military coup. So, for a couple of days, they refused to announce because negotiation was going on between the different uh, factions. And those people who had misunderstanding, a person like now the Deputy Military Council, the second person, uh, General Salif Modi, former Chief of the Army, a man well respected within the Niger community, within the Niger army. So there was a little misunderstanding between him and President Bazum. Bazum retired that man and sent him an ambassador to Dubai. It was barely in a form of exile. So it happened to be he was there in Niamey. So they all accepted Abdurrahman Umar Chayani to be the leader of the military council, uh, Salif, Omar, uh, sorry, Salif Modi, General Salif Modi, former chief of the army, as a deputy. The servant chief of the army, equally, he supported the coup and stood with them, and he did not even request for any post apart from the membership. The, last week, they appointed eight governors, and Niger has eight uh, states. So, eight military governors have appointed them. None of them was a general. All were from middle ranks.
5: So, so you know, looking at this, uh, it, it would seem as if uh, now you're talking about some career threat now to General Tiani, who was leaving office. Uh, in, on one hand, and look at the other uh, general who's been moved to Dubai. But again, let's now delve into what is happening now. ECOWAS, AU and those other uh, Francophone countries, uh, five countries where military uh, ruler, rule is at the moment. Uh, what do you make first of former rebel leader and politician in Nigeria? I think Risa Agbula, who's spoken, uh, saying he would fight on the side of ECOWAS and not in support of the coup leaders.
0: Well, uh, Risa Bula, as you rightly mentioned, he was a former rebel leader. A man was a close uh, friend to ex-president, if I may say, Bazu Mohammed, who was appointed as uh, minister of state. A man was barely heading all the ministers, to all the ministers.
5: Risa Bula. Risa Bula.
0: So, in fact, even if the president, Bazoum, is uh, traveling out, he assigns him to take his work till he returns back. The man from Agadez is very influential in that Agadez site. But within Niamey, so he has very little impact if Bazoum is not on site. So that threat may not uh, have much difference, if you ask me.
5: At the moment, no one has seen or heard from Bazoom lately. A uh, few of these uh, uh, emissaries uh, trying to speak to the coup cool leaders have uh, not been able to speak uh, to Barzoom, uh, making people wonder uh, if Bazoom is okay.
0: Well, Bazum had appeared on the screen when Chadian uh, President uh, Mohamad Idris you know, by the time he landed in Niamey, he met the leader of the junta, Abdurrahman Omar Chani, and the second one in command, Salif Modi, and the ex-president, uh, former president, uh, Mohammed Yusufu and with Bazum as well he met with all of them so, if we are Fair enough, with the military agenda, this one goes to the military agenda's credit. This is the first ever a president in francophone country have been hosted by the military, cool looters, safe and sound. He's with his phone communicating with international agencies, with the dignitaries, with the UN, with the American uh, uh, Foreign Secretary, with the African Union freely, to the extent it's tweeting. So, uh, we are very much sure, at this point, he's safe and sound.
5: National Council for the Protection of Our Homeland, that's what they call the government in place in Niger at the moment. What protection are they talking about?
0: Well, in Niger, before the coup, the situation, social-economical situation in Niger was not sound. Things were actually deteriorating drastically. And so many people, oh, let me say, generally the Niger community, the nation had so many grievances. After that, the insecurity, and unfortunately in Niger, among the very few countries from different regions, insecurity is boiling. Terrorism is Hitting the nation is the southern part, Mali, Burkina Faso border, and the northeast of Nigerian border. Both are highly unstable, and there is no tangible and visible impact from the government side to settle those problems. So discontent was there, massive to massive extent. But I tend to think the protection what they are talking about to free the country from the co- control of France. And that's what met Niger, the, uh, sorry, the citizens from four corners of the nation came out publicly in support of the military junta. Not because of they want the military regime, no. The aim they came on board to liberate the country from the control of France, and I tend to think from there where they got in that name.
5: So you think this is liberation?
0: That what Niger people are perceiving as for now.
5: Well, we saw we saw the um, initial you know flash protests when the coup uh, took place, uh, waving uh, of uh, Russian flags uh, and. Know, down in that of uh, France, you, you might want to speak to us uh, more on what exactly is happening. We saw the France Bakan, how they are initially protested in some other Francophone, uh, French and French nations, uh, and now this is Nigerians saying that well they don't want the former colonial uh, methods. Speak to us on thus seeming uprising in these countries uh, against France.
0: Uh, great. Uh, let us uh, flash back to the history, but to scramble to Africa, 1884. France was among the largest countries.
5: That, that's the Treaty of Westphalia.
0: Uh, yes, please, where they came and colonized massive part of the continent, especially the central part of the continent and the western part of the continent. France had committed unspeakable. Crimes perpetrated, inhuman atrocities against those nations, economical, social, political, security, justice, so on and so forth. But by, by 1960, France claimed that gave independence to those countries. Actually, it was just on a paper. In reality, France is still fully on control of those countries in their decisions, in their economy, in their military, in their resources. Let us bring uh, concrete evidence. Those countries in French-speaking countries or francophone countries in West Africa, all of them, they are compelled to use French currency. Likewise in Central Africa. About five of them or six of them compelled to use French currency. And the foreign reserve of those countries kept in French central bank.
5: So it wasn't a matter of choice? No.
0: And then annually they are paying to Fran- French coffers so-called colonial price for France to, co- to come and colonize Africans to lose their resources, to destroy their lands, and now those countries are paying back annually to France for destroying their lands. And this is a point of no no discussion. Any African president from those countries dare to think about to reschedule or whatsoever, definitely that will be the end of that president. So in Africa, we had about more than 115 military coups more than 90% of them are in French-speaking countries. Let me see, all of those countries, with the exception of Senegal only, the remaining either military, several military coups have occurred, or civil unrest, or civil wars, genocide, happened all in all of those countries, without, with the exception of Senegal.
5: I evidence pointing to
0: this? No doubt about it. uh, Just point me a country out of them. Point for me any country. Those French-speaking. I will tell you the uh, what uh, French intelligence scientists had perpetrated of crimes in Rwanda, in Central Africa, in uh, Congo, in DRC, in Chad, in Niger, in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in Cameroon, in Togo. Togo, that little tiny country The first coup in sub-Saharan Africa was in Togo, 1963. So it was brutal. And the president by then was killed brutally. Most of those coups were carried out by France. When the president wants to negotiate, definitely they will end up with bloody coups. And most were orchestrated in Paris and ordered those agent of France and Africa to perpetrate those crimes. You
5: know, I assume without conceiving uh, that that's what it is. But again, they still also use the, uh, the natives, uh, the citizens of those countries. So how is it that the overwhelming majority are not aware of uh, this kind of incursion uh, by its former colonial masses to see that uh, uh, the fight against uh, being used uh, for such uh, usurpation of power.
0: Thank you so much for this. Key question. In those French colonised countries, deliberately France has deprived those nations from their fundamental rights. People were disconnected from their rights. So only French agents, elements were the allied had access to the authority. Education was sub-zero. In, in Niger, the first university was in the 80s. Till 2000, they had only one university. In Mali, the first university was in the 90s. Till today, they have a handful of universities in the whole nation. This is one of the largest countries in Africa.
5: About so, so tetra institution had to be in France?
0: They do not exist. Think about the infrastructure. Sub-zero. The institution, nothing. In Chad, we had the first university, it was uh, eight, uh, 78. Until today, there is no sound public university apart from the university of Jemena. So at that stage, what do you expect? The nations are cut off from their own authority. Only a few allies who have been trained and to serve France, are there, returning among themselves. And all are identical cases. So what's
5: the place of the sub-regional sort of bloc, ECOWAS, in all of this?
0: We shouldn't forget ECOWAS is economical committee. It's not a military. It's not pure political. And, let me be brutally honest, Most of our African countries are not yet independent, whether French-speaking or English-speaking or Portuguese or Spanish. Um, Most of them are still their final word comes from the colonial masters. So, those our regional and continental institutions are receiving their directives directly from the colonial masters. So, let me just point out one incident. We have one nationalistic. Sound African lady Professor Arikana. Zimbabwean Professor I salute to this great woman she's an icon on African revolution
5: she's been speaking she's been speaking
0: very well and we supposed in Africa every leader to speak with her voice but unfortunately due to the reason most of us most of us we know they are afraid to come out she was ambassador of, AU ambassador to U.S. She come out on YouTube. Part of what I'm saying, she brought them. Within 24 hours, her appointment was terminated. An African ambassador in U.S. Criticizing French wrong policies against Africa. Which are clear crystal crimes perpetrating France in all those African countries. With evidence she brought them. What is a the crime there? And the same France always chanting and making hell of noise that we have a freedom of expression and democracy and whatever have been telling us, teaching us, preaching us. Is that the rule of democracy? Is that the freedom of expression? So those our institutions, still they are getting massive part of their funds from the colonial masters. The person who pays you, definitely will order you. That's exactly what is happening. Unfortunately, a meeting on 30th of last month, on Sunday, to me it was an embarrassment. Let me take the channel, uh, the chain of the events the coup was on Wednesday 26th of June on Saturday 29th French defense council met on extraordinary meeting regarding the coup in Niger was the coup in Niger or in France if it was in France I don't know what the business of French defense council to call for extraordinary meeting. Now they met, they discussed, the moment they finished, they made their connection or communication. ECOWAS had summoned, summoned for the leaders to come to Abuja in less than 24 hours. Most of the African or West African members of the ECOWAS state president were in Russia, in St. Petersburg having meeting with Putin. So those ones who were close to France, they, who have refused to go to Russia, they came to Abuja. And they brought, this was unprecedented. ECOWAS is a community of the neighboring countries. So, so
5: are, are you implying that that meeting was at the instance of France, the ECOWAS
0: meeting that held in Abuja? Undoubtedly, If you ask me, that is my opinion. That's not the problem. The meeting took place and everything it seems like was already made In ECOWAS charter, ECOWAS is an Economical Development Committee. There is no single article in states ECOWAS should intervene militarily in a member state. I salute the Nigerian lawmakers, the great Nigerian Senate. They oppose it. The lawmakers could not violate the law. Yes, we should not support the military coup. We need the rule of law. We need real democracy. What we have in Africa is not a democracy. It's piracy. Massively. Most of our elections, are
5: so let's look at Wayfold. Uh, you know, I- Ibrahim, you've seen uh, Lamida Sanusi uh, meeting Chiani, and uh, we also understand that uh, there's a large Tijaniya sect in the Niger Republic. Uh, he's been the only one who's uh, been so lucky to have a sit down with uh, Abdurrahman Chiani. So do you see an end to this, you know, uh, political lockjam in Niger?
0: Well, for military junta, accepting uh, Lamido Sanusi, less than 24 hours, another delegation came and was rejected. UN, AU, ECOWAS. The reason ECOWAS used an aggressive manner in the first place, provoked those military junta. military coup is not something peculiar to Africa as I said earlier we have over 115 military coups in Nigeria alone there are five military coups earlier within the last three years we had seven military coups in the region in Africa none was approached with the approach have been received by this military junta so there were react rigorously. They come to the stage now, things we hope will come down. Dialogue is the best solution.
5: And there's a meeting here in Abuja tomorrow uh, that will be presided over by the ECOS chairman, Nigeria's president, uh, uh, Bona And again, uh, the U.S. has said that, well, it's still uh, hopeful that something uh, just might happen. And again, if that does happen, if uh, Basel is reinstated, what do you think will happen to the coup leaders? And knowing for all by the laws of Nigeria, uh, if you attempt a coup, uh, the penalty Trudium. is
0: death. Well, we shouldn't jump to conclusion. Let well, us Well, that's, say that's say yet, the conclusion uh, already. Yes, uh, no, let us uh, wait for the meeting of ECOWAS tomorrow. But anyway, things are now taking better dimension. For all state president to come back is not regular. Within one hundred and fifteen coups, military coups occurred in Africa, only one ousted president came back. That was Gabonese President Leo Mba. Back till nineteen sixty four he was ousted by military coup and brought back by special French special forces intervened and brought him back to the office, remain until he died. Otherwise we don't have any other case. So for Bazoum to come back is going to be I don't think it will going to be so easy. But what we want, let us take the case of Mali, which happened just two years back, or three years maximum, or the one of uh, neighboring Burkina Faso. ECOWAS and the other mediators should give terms to the military junta. Let the rule of the constitution sh- and the democracy should come back. For them to be transitional and with limited terms to organize free and fair elections, One funny about in 2010, there was a military coup in Niger. And the French government, by then, was supporting that military coup. Bazoum, the current president, sorry, the ex-president, he was a lawmaker, he was a parliamentarian. He was on the street, chanting, shouting, supporting the military coup in 2010. So, now things have taken another dimension. Anyway, we hope for peace. This ultimatum, frightening given uh, tough conditions, military officials will never come with a solution we, d- we are satisfied, we will, uh, our region became war zones
5: speaking our of war zones, let's close on that because just uh, recently we saw uh, countries uh, going into war against itself uh, Ethiopia and the Tigray people, uh, that wasn't good and that is why many Nigerians are saying uh, looking at the seven states that border Niger, should anything go on towards her, then it should it, it, it will be likened to what has happened in Ethiopia and the Tigrayans. So what do you think will be the resolution? You say you don't want to jump into conclusion. This is not about conclusion. If, if all else fails and is still pointing to military action, what will this mean for the ECWAS region?
0: Well, we pray it should not be so. Military intervention, no foreign military intervention come with good results. Apart from destruction. And now with the ultimatum, we have seen now ECHO itself in danger. Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, members, they declared any military intervention in Niger is the de- war declaration against them. And they promised will withdraw from so it's not a joke it's a very serious issue so it's going to be the region of war in case it happens sorry before I should forget what France really wanted to bring back Bazoum through what France has done in Ivory Coast 2010 against Laurent Gbagbo that's really what France wanted to do but for French forces to come openly definitely it will anger the continent and the world as well for that France wanted to use some agents here and there, just to cover them and the French forces 1,500 personnel are in Niger today and over seven military bases are there all French, sorry, Niger airports are controlled by French army.
5: And as you run away from France uh, shouldn't you also be aware of running into the wide open arms
0: of the Russians? Well First of all, I'm against any occupation. We want to be free. And our destiny should be in our hands as African nations. To run from colonization and fall into another colonization definitely is not a solution. But a message to France and Co. let them be ashamed of themselves. What will make it legal for them to come and intervene in Africa and will make a crime for Russia to be present? For what? Let us be objective. Anyway, Russia, Mali, Burkina Faso, the records for Russia. If Russia was not brought on Wagner Group, definitely military intervention by French forces we have witnessed in Mali back.
5: Because Africa is important, and that's why we gave this entire show to this issue about Niger. Ibrahim Zain Kanji, I would like to thank you for your time, and I do hope you come back again here on the Rise Time Plan so I have to have this conversation.
1: Welcome back, and that was a discussion uh, on uh, the situation in Niger and the role of neighboring uh, Federal Republic of Nigeria in that whole crisis. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment on Black August. of uh, New Orleans, Irma Thomas uh, with the track and title Time is on my side and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for uh, Friday August the 18th, 2023 and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit and if you'd like to have access to this program just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. Uh, right now we want to move into our Black August segment, a month-long commemoration of the struggle of African people against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. And this deals uh, with the 19th century struggle by Africans and indigenous people in the southeastern region of the united states against the united states uh known popularly as the seminole wars let's listen in
6: this evening on the rock newman show the black seminoles of florida participated in one of the most successful slave revolts in u.s history Historian Dr. Anthony Dixon has studied this group of Native Americans and blacks and joins us to share their struggles and determinations and how they resisted the efforts of the U.S. military to keep them enslaved. Coming up right now on The Rock Newman Show. Welcome to the Rock Newman Show from the campus of historic Howard University. I'm Rock Newman, and it is my desire to inspire you with personal stories of extraordinary achievement. In the early 1950s, Hollywood films not only depicted Native Americans as savages, but the roles were often played by white actors. Let's take a look. I bring him a most important message.
5: I do not trust you.
6: Silence your tongue, young one. He has been in council with his chiefs. Come, we will find him my guest is an african-american history professor with expert knowledge about the efforts to enslave the entire black seminole population in florida and the second seminole war joining me now is author and historian dr anthony dixon welcome to the rock newman show
7: good afternoon brother thank you for having me let me say
6: from the outset that um your book here called uh, florida's Florida's Negro War is one I really wish we had several hours to examine this evening. The Seminole Wars are um, little known history facts, much mischaracterized when it has been talked about, and I want to get into all of that. Before I do though, I want to get a little uh, introduce my audience to to you, Doctor okay. Doctor Anthony Dixon. Um, we were talking last night, and you said something that you would have no idea how much it resonated with me because you mentioned one of my favorite characters in all of American history, and that is Jackie Robinson.
3: Okay. And then you
6: mentioned another one named Mary McLeod Bethune. Yes. So if you wouldn't mind. As we start this here, if you would share what it, how their paths crossed in the great state of Florida.
7: Okay. Um, well, of course, Mary McLeod Mary came into Florida in the early 1900s, and she established a school for African-American girls, and it went on to become what we call now Bethune-Cookman University. The relationship between the two was such. Um, of course, Jackie Robinson played for uh, played baseball for the Dodgers. Their spring training was in Daytona. Mm-hmm. However, um, Jackie could not stay in in Daytona. There was there wasn't a rooming house. There wasn't a hotel that would accept him. Uh, so he would spend initially. He started spending uh, his time in a nearby city called Sanford. Uh, If you recall, this is where Trayvon Martin was murdered, Um, and he would have to ride over from Sanford into Daytona for practice,
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
7: but through, in time rather, um, he developed a relationship with Mary McLeod, and so uh, he began to spend more more time on campus at Bethune-Cookman, and he was welcomed there so he didn't have to drive all the way back to Sanford mm-hmm. uh, everyday especially after a, a long day of practice mm-hmm. uh, he was allowed to um, come over to Bethune-Cookman mm-hmm. and he began to spend a lot more time with Mary McLeod uh, by this time she was uh, toward the end of her career mm-hmm. and, and life yeah. um, for that matter uh, but they still developed a very good relationship and we still have and we do have rather Archival material to attest to that relationship.
6: Yeah, and
7: th- where he
6: would come visit her at the house yes. is a home that she worked from and created a small uh, museum
7: of sorts initially in a room. No, what she did was she created a foundation. Uh huh. She created a foundation on her and at her home. She added a uh, room to it as an office yeah. and through that she began to continue her work for the African American community uh, and when I say African American community I mean as a whole uh, with the National Council of Negro Women, yeah. um, her work with the black cabinet, yeah. um, subsequent work years later mm-hmm. uh, through those relationships, all of those things she culminated into a foundation. Right. And so uh, the house, the home itself, um, has now become a museum. Uh-huh. So the foundation is still there. Um, NCNW still comes on campus. Yeah. Um, we still do uh, some carry on some of her work, some of the community work that she she started. Uh, but we also now interpret her life through through the house and through the museum. And so now her her house is a museum itself. And who's the executive director? Uh, I am. <laughs> it's good to have the executive director of the Mary McLeod Bethune House and Museum. Yes, yes. Uh, that as well as the uh, archives that is located right next door in the, build, in mm-hmm. the uh, library.
3: Right, and right. so
7: we have the university archives that has the complete Mary McLeod Bethune collection, mm-hmm. uh, which includes her work here yeah. in D.C.
6: Have you been to, by any chance, the uh... national council of negro women building here offices here in washington dc no i have man not. it's uh... It, it 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 was the first owned property by african-americans uh... right downtown here on pennsylvania avenue
7: oh not yeah that. yeah, I yeah. Not one, know. one of
6: one of our giants dorothy height yeah. uh... headed up the uh... national council of negro women for many years and obviously was uh you know, worshipped uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and and carried on in a great tradition. And uh, she put it all together, man, she and her team, to, to get that building down there.
7: Yes, she did a great job. And she was also um, very close to Mary as well. Yeah. Um, she was a regular guest on campus as well. Uh-huh. Um, as a few other activists and and uh, other people, uh, known people, uh, African-American um that we give notoriety to, yeah. and I'll be honest, not all relationships were glitz and glamour sure, and gold. Sure, you know, um, sure. relationship come to mind quickly. Um, Zora Neale, uh-huh. Zora Neale Hurston, yes. actually taught at Bethune Cookman mm-hmm. um, for a short stint, mm-hmm. um, but we find that that relationship, you know, two bright stars don't always yeah. shine <laughs> together. Yeah. So. Um, her stint at Bethune-Cookman was short, mm-hmm. uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was impactful. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, you uh, y- you wrote this book,
6: uh, Florida's Negro War, uh, Black Seminoles, and the Second Seminole War, 1835 to 1842. Give us a little bit about your background, and please tell us, how you became interested in uh, publishing uh, this book.
7: First, um, I, uh, even in undergrad, uh, history was my major. Uh, Afro-Am Studies was my minor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, worked, I had the, the honor of working under Dr. Larry Rivers, uh, who actually wrote the uh, anthology piece on slavery in Florida. And so when I returned to uh, Florida A&M, uh, from my undergrad, after receiving it, I uh, returned for my master's. I became his graduate assistant, mm-hmm. and in that, he was always sending me uh, to the library, sending me to the state archives, different places. And so, for me, I became interested. My area um, was slavery and reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Just, just to so clear. Uh, Dr. Larry Rivers was president of Fort Valley State?
3: Yes. Uh The same
7: doctor, he left Uh from Florida Uh A&M and went on to become president of Fort Valley State. Right. Um, Now, in that, um, my studies for and looking at um, slavery and reconstruction, um, I started then kind of narrowing the focus, and I started looking at resistance and resistance to slavery and oppression mm-hmm. and so in doing so I came across this this very unique outstanding story of African Americans who actually resisted uh, slavery they, res- they resisted their reenslavement. they resisted the enslavement of their um, of their offspring of their children and their descendants and they ended up going into a war partnering with the Seminole Native Americans and going into a war uh, that we now consider the longest and deadliest Native American war fought on U.S. soil, but we are also now looking at it and then examining it as possibly in what I like to call um, the largest slave rebellion on U.S. soil. We talk about the Point Coupe, we talk about uh, Matt Turner, and of course we Talk about Denmark and his, the, um, the Mm failed, right, Denmark Mm -hmm. Mm v. And the failed attempt, Mm -hmm. but we don't talk about this group of people who actually, um, absconded, got their freedom, retained their freedom, fought the U.S. government for seven long years, and were able to keep their freedom. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, when we look at it in that, that vernacular, and, and we start looking at the dynamics from that perspective, we have to we have to start looking at the Second Seminole War as a, a slave rebellion.
3: Yeah. And mm-hmm. and
7: furthermore, not only if we look at it as a slave rebellion, we now have to say that it is the largest. Yeah. On U.S. soil.
6: Yeah. And you know, on the clip that was played, when I first saw it, it just made my head explode because it the title Seminole War Cries and it said thunder and fury of savage vengeance. So the depiction back in the 1950s up until that time and since that time mm-hmm. has so often been just of that that when which speaks to the issue that until the lion is able to write his story. The cap, the the the, the one doing the capturing is always going to be glorified, right. and that was just so prominent. And when you see these kinds of films about this about this war and about this time, in your book, one of the first things that caught me was you write you write black maroon settlements in the wilderness existed by utilizing a pan-Africanist perspective in the social, political, religious, and military organization of their communities. And you say that,
7: why? Uh, given their roots themselves initially. Mm-hmm. Um, most of your initial Florida Maroons are actually uh, Afghan runaways. I was going to ask you to describe Maroons. Okay. Yeah. Maroons are basically enslaved people who decide uh, to run away, to abscond from the plantation, and eke out the existence in the wilderness um, however uh, they can. Yeah. And so they go into the most, um, what we would call treacherous portions, especially for uh, Europeans. And when I say that, I mean the, uh, particularly the swampy areas. Because uh, the swamps and water, of course, bring the mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes would bring um, yellow fever. And Europeans and their descendants were highly succep- susceptible to uh, to yellow fever. Mm-hmm. So they would specifically go, like the Great Dismal Swamp on the North Carolina, Virginia area, mm-hmm. and then into Florida um, in the different areas in Florida um, for those specific reasons that they could, uh, eke out their own existence. Now, where these people come from are, are primarily out of the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands, mm-hmm. uh, what we call Gullah, mm-hmm. and which is now, uh, of course, the only national heritage area dedicated to African-American culture. We call it the Gullah, Gullah Heritage Corridor, right. Gullah Geechee um, National Heritage Corridor. Now, these people, uh, your Gullah people are basically people who take West African languages as this now a homogenized group of West Africans sure. now and so they uh, create a language that we call Geechee and they incorporate West African culture, West African language and then they incorporate uh, plantation life, specifically mm. English plantation life mm-hmm. um, and of course English words. And so they created their own culture. We call it Gullah. We call their language Geechee. Now, when these people began to run away, um, they began to head south. I know most people think the uh, Underground Railroad always went north, right. but the first Underground Railroad actually went south mm-hmm. into, at that time, La Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and the Spanish held Florida, and they called it La Florida at that right. time. Right. And so. Because they are arguing, and when I say they, I mean the English and the Spanish, mm-hmm. they are fighting for control over parts of the East Coast. They are actually fighting for English, all English the English and Coast. British. The English and the Spanish. Uh-uh, they are uh-huh. fighting. I, but I,
6: I, I, meant to say, I meant to say the Spanish and the British.
7: Right. The right. Spanish mm-hmm. and the British are mm-hmm. fighting for control over the East Coast, right. basically. Right. Uh, the Spanish have laid claim from as far as Miami all the way up to Newfoundland, Um, Canada Mm -hmm. and of course the English are disputing that and so what happens is the Spanish understand that the English survival is based on plantation society that they have placed in on on how well they are going to do in terms of the agriculture Mm -hmm. whereas the Spanish are looking at the precious commodities
3: Mm
1: -hmm.
7: they find the gold and the silver of course out in out west yeah and so they're more concerned out west than they are with the east coast. Mm-hmm. But when the British come and start taking and engulfing the land and claiming it as their own, they have to come back and focus. Mm-hmm. And so when they focus, they realize that how the English goes is how their um, slaves go, mm-hmm. how they enslaved. Mm-hmm how many they bring in, how much work they get done, right. and that is clearly the point of which they are going to build plantation society.
3: Mm-hmm. So what
7: the Spanish do to counter that is that they offer, in uh, 1693, they offer an edict that says, any, any enslaved person that runs away from the English society right. can come to La Florida and mm-hmm. live for free. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> what happens you to live, live in, in freedom. freedom. Live in freedom, yes. live for mm-hmm. free. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. There's, we have two different scenarios there. They say you can go two ways. You can either go into the wilderness, live in, in Florida, in the wilderness, eke mm-hmm. out your own existence. Uh, we only ask that when you see the British, if you see them in the area, get word to us. Mm-hmm. That's all that we ask. Okay. And then there was a second, second offering or a second group um, they made an offer. Well, a second group arises out of an offer, and they basically say you can live under Spanish authority.
6: You can. You can. Mm-hmm.
7: You can come to St. Augustine, mm-hmm. uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and live under Spanish authority. They built a fort. Um, it's called Fort Mose. Yeah. Uh, it is now a historical site. And uh, the thing about it is, of course, because it's Spanish and you're going under the authority, they had to. They had one. Um, one main rule is that they had to become Catholic mm-hmm. right so we see cultural differences starting to, right, right starting to sure. to come about between the two groups of um uh, the two groups of runaways mm-hmm. now those that are living in the wilderness though they are eking out their own existence and they are retaining Gullah culture mm-hmm. and they are keeping that gullah culture and so we see. Gullah, at this point, once it gets into Florida, and it goes from Florida to the Bahamas and to uh, Texas to Oklahoma and ultimately to Nacimiento, Mexico, there's a small group of Gullah people that actually do leave Fort Mose, and they end up in Cuba, and they have a a, uh, community there Mm -hmm. as well. And so what we see is Gullah then turning into a diaspora once it comes into Florida. Mm-hmm. And so what then happens also is while they are creating these small villages and eking out this society, there are also Native Americans yeah. that, are, that are trying to escape plantation society as well mm-hmm. out of the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, we see the larger numbers, of course, coming um, after the um, Yamasee War, mm-hmm.
3: now um,
6: now if I could stop you for a second because yes. you say you know the Native Americans um, are trying to escape plantation existence also, right? And, and, uh, because what has happened is they who originally occupied the land mm-hmm. now was were having their, was having their land. Taken away from them, yes, yeah. and all not all, but and then captured by those who took the land
7: right mm-hmm. and it's it's also more than that as well. I know that's the most important
3: thing mm-hmm. that
7: taking your land and taking parts of your freedom, mm-hmm. but also it's the encroachment of the society. you see the basic problem and I won't go too far on tangent there, but the basic problem between Europeans and Native Americans was property use and land right. Mm-hmm. That was the basic problem. They had two very different concepts. Right. Native Americans did not believe that you could own the land. Right. Whereas of course Europeans you own what you can get or take. Right? Right? Yeah. And so on the that those basic um ideologies, the conflict in those basic ideologies, we see everything else stemming from mm-hmm. when, in terms of that relationship. Right. Now when we look at relationship between Native Americans and blacks or Africans at this time, Mm -hmm. it has to develop Mm -hmm. because uh, initially all Native Americans see are these black people on their land, clearing their land. And so they had to come to the understanding that these black people, these Africans were being forced Mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't these Africans that were actually encroaching your land. It's actually the people who were driving the force and... And uh, were manipulating and "quote unquote" owning them. Mm-hmm. And so, let, let me let me stop you there because mm-hmm. i, I, I
6: want to give the I want to give the viewers an opportunity to see how you succinctly put this. As you we talked about the definition of maroon, she said these maroon communities established close relationships with the na- with the neighboring Native Americans. These two communities lived for the most part in harmony and provided the foundation for what would later become the Seminole nation. I, I, I want to go further. Um, these the, the culture was created by fusing various African traditions which resulted in Pan-Africanist ethos within the community. This type of Pan-African culture existed with minimal European interference. These Pan-African cultural traits manifested themselves in a variety of cultural forms that distinguished their communities from both Spanish society and Native American communities, regardless of the close proximity. Research has shown that these cultural traits were most prevalent in, com- in
7: communication,
6: artistic expression, and religion.
7: Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, each one communication um, with the Gullah. What they did, um, and this is where we really start seeing Gullah turn into a diaspora, because they are cohabitating and nothing happens overnight, mm-hmm. right? They are, they are coming down through what was considered the buffer zone then. Yeah. And, of course, it ends up becoming the last 13 colony in Georgia. Yeah. And so in that buffer zone, we start seeing a lot of Native Americans and uh, partic- particularly the smaller bands of Native Americans, not the large ones, the creeks, the... Cherokee, but initially the smaller ones, the Hittite and the Yuchi, the smaller bands, mm-hmm. um, and those that are smaller factions out of the Yamase, um, or Yamase, some say, um, what's happening is they begin to uh, cohabitate a little bit, but moreover, they're beginning to, uh, to find ways to communicate better with each other. Mm-hmm. So what we see is now the Gullah the Gullah dialect Gullah language being starting to incorporate Native American words Mm -hmm. and so once that happens we see a metamorphosis and we don't call that Gullah we actually call that the Afro-Seminole Creole um language okay and so that is the mixture between Gullah Mm -hmm. which again is the West African and um English words Mm -hmm. and now we have certain Native American words that are put into it and that is what changes it. And that's what really puts us on that road to saying uh, Gullah is a diaspora. Mm-hmm. So now in that, right, back to the uh, relationship itself, uh, this cohabitation continues to grow. Yes. Because plantation society is encroaching upon Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's encroaching in that they are chasing away the food. Mm-hmm which means they're changing their way of life. Mm -hmm. And so they are also having to depend on these runaways as well to show them how to actually plant different crops, how to rotate different crops Mm -hmm. in order for sustainability now because they can't rely on the hunting Mm -hmm. that they have done for eons or years prior. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, And let me interject, please. Because you when you say plantation
6: life, I want my viewers to make sure they understand what that is that plantation life is about enslaving people to be able to grow the plantations
7: right, and but it's also turning for Native Americans is turning the land mm-hmm. into an agrarian society, yes. all those open fields where the deer ran and the deer, and the bears went where they could have plenty of food, rabbits and all of that yeah are now being chased out because you have enslaved people who are now turning over the ground, Mm -hmm. turning it all into uh, a field. And so that is also the encroachment, that they are losing their food supply as well. And so they are being forced out of the area. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're being forced out of the area as well as uh, Plantation Society grows. So they began to cohabitate. Now, here's, I, I, gotta have, I have to tell you this, and this, this is important, and it kind of leads back to why you also get some of these negative um, <coughs> words. We've always had those general savage terms for Native Americans, but uh, the ironic thing about this particular case and the ironic thing about the Seminoles is the Seminoles are homo- a homogenous group of Native Americans themselves. Mm-hmm. They are actually... The, the majority of them are former Creeks.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, ba- what happens is there's a large schism in the Creek Nation. The mm-hmm. Creek Nation breaks.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: You have your upper Creeks that live in northern part of present-day Alabama. They're up, of course, by the uh, mountains up in that area. Mm-hmm. And then you have your lower Creeks mm-hmm. that are down in that corner between Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, mm-hmm. right? And so what happens is the, the ones in the south, they began to accept Plantation Society. Mm -hmm. They even began to buy and trade enslaved people. Mm
3: -hmm.
7: And so they began to not resist Plantation, but actually Mm -hmm. join and work with Plantation Society. Mm -hmm. And so the Creeks up north were basically, what are you doing? We don't own people. We take them as war. We hold them so we won't have to fight them again. We keep their women so we can keep our numbers up. But we don't. Enslave them for our own living. Yeah. you know, what are you all doing? Yeah, and so there's this schism mm-hmm. And so the northern northern creeks push themselves Push their way rather through Alabama They push through the southern creeks and they come into Florida mm-hmm. And so when they come into Florida they mix with the other Native Americans that are also running you have the uh, Miccosukee Like I said, you have other smaller bands. You even have some Cherokee that are leaving North Georgia and the Mm -hmm. other areas of Georgia, and they're coming um, down into Florida. These are smaller bands, though, that are kind of broken away Mm -hmm. because they needed to figure out how they were going to survive as well. And so they become this homogenous group that we call the Seminoles. Uh, And it actually, when you look at the word and you trace it back, Semolina, Cimarron, um, it has different meanings, but the main one is um, breakaway creek mm-hmm. or renegade creek. Mm-hmm. That's why everything you see with Florida State University and they yeah. say the um, Seminoles, they, every, the first thing you see up on it is renegade mm-hmm. because that is one of the original terms for semolina.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, and then there was a negative term that the Spanish gave, semaran. Uh, which basically meant wild beast, wild mm-hmm. wild dog. And, and of course, you can understand that it's just like anything else. When you're on the opposite side of the team,
3: you know, with yeah. you, the
7: opponent, yeah. it's not going to be a positive word. Mm-hmm. On the other side, mm-hmm. um, even when we use the word griot, mm-hmm. uh, most people don't know for Europeans, they thought the word griot was a very negative word. It was a negative term. Mm-hmm. But we embrace that term. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same, same thing here. When we look at the words like um, savage and all of that good stuff, it's that opposite side of the fence type okay. of thing when part of
6: just as you're describing here and we haven't gotten we haven't gotten you know into the book yet where you really start to talk about what is the the, the violence the the continual grabbing of the land the the the, the, sla- the slaughter of the people Mm -hmm. And to deal with the book, you know, we will get there. But, you know, just early on I made a big note when, 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 when you talked about Angola being the first noted town there of the Native American settlements, Angola. And then you go, then on the same page is 18, in 1821, Angola was destroyed and the town burned. And we've, in terms of the U.S. military, mm-hmm. and again, its occupation, just throughout history when either Native Americans have been involved or African Americans have been involved, there is the burning of a town, man. There's the, there's the slaughter of a people. And so on, what is this, on page 11,
3: mm-hmm.
6: I just felt, you know, without dramatizing it, you expose the terror. When one Mm -hmm. thinks for a second that here are people who live every waking hour, who one, have been imported as slaves, others who were the original inhabitants of the land, Mm -hmm. and every waking hour, they must be mindful of the tyranny that is coming at them with fire and fury that they have no experience with for a very long time.
7: I'm sorry, let me jump in there first, the point of clarification. Angola was actually a black Seminole village. It sat next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Native Americans lived outside of Angola. Uh, and you are right. You see that time and time again. Um, even in, in this period, with my with my book in dealing with the Black Seminoles, there are actually two other instances where um, villages are being burned that they can just completely burn it down, and so we see um, that as a regular tactic. Yeah. You know that that is a regular tactic that was used all the way up through the 19. We can we can trace that all the way through all the way to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And other places that this is when communities, uh, when African American communities are out of the graces, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, yeah. of the larger white community, yeah. they simply get rid of it, yeah. and they do it by normally by just destroying the whole thing. And and we all know fire is is a pretty good tool and it's pretty quick and easy. Yeah. So y- you know I don't want to.
6: Jump around too much but I, but I want to okay. do this because as I was reading it i wrote a, I, I wrote in big letters the, the 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 legitimacy of the conversation of reparations i mean it, it, that's a that's a whole nother conversation that's a whole nother show, but when you just go back and look at the basics here of what people had. And the, the slaughter that took place and the, 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 the stealing by force of land, by murder and slaughter and genocide, mm-hmm. that issue of, 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 of reparations, just, I, I couldn't get past, what am I on, page 18. It's like, man, does this ever make a case without trying to do it for reparations.
7: And I'll say this briefly so we can can stay on topic about reparations. We have different instances. This this is clearly a case. Um, We have another case I'll mention in just a second. The issue is there's always been uh, opposition, right? And that opposition to it comes in this idea of quantifiable measurement, right? How can we quantify things if we really want to say, reparations right mm-hmm. uh, and that's been the biggest tool against reparation right mm-hmm. but the thing about it is we actually can mm-hmm. there are instances where we can quantify um, one in particular i always use think about all of those years african-americans went paying taxes to state schools that they couldn't go to yeah. you see so there are things that are yeah. quantifiable yeah. when we can look at repar- when talking mm-hmm. about reparations yeah. so this whole notion about it not being able to be done because we can never quantify is that's a farce that's yeah. that's just something yeah. to hold us off yeah. like everything else. you're
3: right
6: that is another conversation
7: yeah you know so, right. so
6: so so I so I you know I make notes here I said you know the desire to be free the desire to be free and the fear of enslavement. That is going on, and I, and, I, and I just underline something. You know, it says runaway slaves. Again, as we lead into how the 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 freed blacks, the free blacks, the runaway slaves, and the the the, the Native Americans, the Native, how they and the, which became Seminoles and then came to the Seminole War, just leading up. Leading up to that, again, is this idea of folks living living, and being all the time in terror. They're all the time living with the sense of terror that is just around the corner. Because these folks who get depicted in these movies, what they are, calling themselves United States, military, calling themselves Plantation Society or the rest,
7: or, or the, terrorists. Or the militia. Or the militia,
6: are terrorists. Yeah. Terrorizing the population.
7: And you have to understand that it's a progression as well. Yes. It's a progression. Um, that's why we ended up in three Seminole Wars.
3: Uh-huh.
7: Um, because each time, uh, we can actually see how each Seminole War directly affected the growth of Florida and Florida mm-hmm. becoming what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, the first Seminole War opened up plantation society for Florida. Opened up
6: plantation society. Yes. Opened up where landowners came in and built wealth off of slaves, off the back of slaves,
7: and taking the land from the native Americans And taking land, yes, to do so. Right. Um, and so what we see with that first with that first war is with the first Seminole War they get to clear out the Native Americans out of North Florida uh, particularly the area from um, Tallahassee to Gainesville mm-hmm. because that land was considered as fertile and in some places more fertile than even Georgia and at this time Georgia was becoming cotton king and so mm-hmm. the expansion into Florida they figured had to be done mm-hmm. and so when they remove them we see plantation society coming in but also this is when Florida becomes a territory. Florida becomes a territory just after the First Seminole War. And so you write. And you write.
6: right. Once Florida became a, United, uh, became a United States possession in 1821, mm-hmm. whites were infuriated by black Indian relationship. Thus, from 1821 to 1835, relations between Seminoles and whites steadily de- deteriorated. So, how dare you...
7: Inferior people have no. a have a civil relationship. And not only that, continue to work together against us. Yeah. See, that's the that's the thing. That, but they gave them that common, you know, the enemy of my um, enemy, yeah. right? Sure. And so um, what we see is that first war, right, mm-hmm. clearing out the land, yeah. Florida becoming a territory. Mm-hmm. The second one, the one that the book is based on, that ends up being a seven-year war
3: mm-hmm.
7: now here's the issue with that we have native americans who are agreeing to leave then we have native americans who said we're not going to leave right um, and one in particular is Osceola.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, he's not a chief but because of his war attributes he becomes a war chief mm-hmm. and so you have those who are willing to stay who want to stay and don't want to leave mm-hmm. But at the same token, you have uh your black Seminoles, right, right. and at this point, um uh, we stop calling them Maroons and we call them Seminoles because they now make a concerted effort to not only live together yeah. we have um familiar relationships now. It mm-hmm. usually happens at the top, but mm-hmm. they're still doing it, they're sure. cohabitating together, mm-hmm. all of those good things marrying. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes, intermarriage. Yeah. marriage, mm-hmm, It's mm-hmm. usually done at the higher level, sure, but sure. Um, between chiefs and whatnot, yeah. but it's it's being done. Um, and so at that point, right, you got two different things that are going on, right? you got the Native Americans who want to keep the land. you got the blacks who want to keep their freedom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when they go into this war in 1835, is it, because they are fueled, of course, by the Indian removal policy. Um, from Andrew Jackson,
3: mm-hmm.
7: uh, which spent, who who got his political career in Florida as well. Mm-hmm. And this is where he actually got the concept to develop the um, Indian removal policy yes. by helping Florida get rid of the um, Seminoles, the first round in mm-hmm. North Florida.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
7: Now, once this happens, the war becomes evident that it is not about removing Native Americans, but it is more so about getting these blacks back into slavery. Profoundly so. Not only for the work, because there is a number that could change things in terms of work. There's Mm -hmm. a large enough workforce there that Mm -hmm. could be garnered, Mm -hmm. right? But not only that, not only the workforce, it is the concept, right? It's the idea that... You have an area that is growing into a colony that could be a set, go from a settlement to a colony that could go to its own nation, mm-hmm. based on the fact of the opposition of slavery, mm-hmm. meaning our slaves as plantation, our enslaved people, yeah. right, will get the notion to go to Florida
1: mm-hmm. because and- welcome back, and uh, that was a detailed discussion on uh, what is known as the. Black Seminole Wars of the 19th century, and that was um, a part of our Black August commemoration for 2023. We'll be back with more in our next episodes uh, in this month. That's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for today. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And that is the website of the Pan-African Radio Network. If you'd like to read the uh, Pan-African Newswire so that you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of the Lee Morgan Sextet. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. <laughs>